Good morning. Our passage this morning will be found in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Shane basically preached my sermon for me, so if we could just replay what he said. It's very good. Very good synopsis. I'm glad we're on the same page. Um, We're going through a series on the parables, as you know, and um, the parables are definitely stories. They're not true accounts. They're stories. But they're more than illustrations. They are often introducing brand new teaching. In fact, in our sermon, this, in our parable this morning, Jesus is using the parable to teach new information to the audience and to the lawyer. Uh, we'll notice they often disrupt the status quo. They kind of shake you at the core. Also, sometimes they force answers. Last week, we heard from the, uh, the parable of the two debtors And Simon the Pharisee was asking or was forced to answer who loved the most, right? So he says, I suppose the one who was forgiven the most. And so he's sort of trapped in an answer. And in a way, all of us, when we come to these parables, are drawn into not only the disruptive nature of them, but then the the fact that we have to answer with the person asking the question about what it means to love our neighbor. And so this morning's parable is very famous, as Shane mentioned Uh, And as you can see before you, the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's hard to know like what's the most famous parable, but I feel like this is one of those, just the term, Good Samaritan is out there, right? There's ministries named after, you know, Samaritan's Purse, and people say it even in colloquial usage. But this morning, I want us to be tested by it. And we'll notice the lawyer, uh, when we'll see, when we read it in just a moment, he stood up to test Jesus. Now, it's important to understand, yes, maybe he was trying to trick Jesus. Certainly, scribes and Pharisees did that. But in this situation, this person is doing a very normal thing. Jesus is an itinerant teacher. Uh, He's bringing information. If you're sitting and listening, it would be very respectful to stand up. That's the respectful thing to do. And to direct your attention and your question to Jesus. And to find out, is it true? Is what you're saying true? For my, in my own discipleship and my wife's, we both really understood around the same time what the gospel meant, not just for salvation, but for growth in Christ. And we would test it. We'd find ourselves asking, how does it apply here? Does it apply even in that situation? And I found myself wanting to test the good news of the gospel. And so hopefully this morning, that's what we'll do. So if you'll now turn with me or we'll look in the slide behind me, Luke chapter 10, Verses 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to him, excuse me, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. 
And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we praise you that you've sent Jesus to show us the way. And this morning we have a passage of scripture that you've written. You've sent your spirit into our hearts to understand. And I pray that um, you would use these words in this time to further teach us what it means to follow you. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't yet know you, I pray they would hear the beautiful message of the gospel that you are there to bring them into the kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen. I saw an advertisement for a dystopian movie coming out. I'm not going to talk about that because it looked pretty intense and you'd want to go watch it. It's not coming out till December. But it got me thinking about dystopian novels and that genre. Uh, and I don't fully grasp all of it, but uh, a couple of examples that I've, I'm thinking of would be like The Giver. Do you remember the book, The Giver, that they turned into a movie a couple years ago where there's one person in the community who knows the story and everybody else in the community has been duped. They forgot their history. And so the, the concept there is that they don't see reality. They don't understand who they are. And this one person, the giver, knows. And the, the job is to transfer that knowledge to this new person. Or the matrix is another example where the, the masses have no idea they're part of this, this thing, this simulated reality called the matrix that AI, artificial intelligence, has put them into only a select few see it. Well, all of these dystopian realities find their genesis in the Bible, the greatest dystopian story of all time, right? You have utopia in the garden, and then you have the fall. And what we're told is from the fall all the way till Jesus returns is a blindness that the majority of people just can't see what's right in front of them. In the garden, we have the eating of the fruit and, the, and the, the coming in of sin and the curse that has created such evil and such um, destruction, but it's also created this blindness. And what Jesus is doing in the passage right before our sermon is he's receiving the 72 that he has sent out. They're coming back, rejoicing at all the deeds they did. They were, they were involved in repealing the curse and he says, rejoice not in those things. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. He's setting them back to this is the goal. Don't forget the mission. Don't forget the, the point. And then he prays this prayer. In the name, in that hour, it says he prays in the Holy Spirit, thanking the Father that God has hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. His point is this. He's thanking the Father that you can't just stumble upon it. You need Jesus to see the story, to wake up, to be able to see the dystopian reality that's around us. And here's why I bring all this up, is when we come to our story and our parable, it's immediately following that reality, 
that this lawyer asks his question. And all of us are asking this question. What does it look like to understand the kingdom? What does it look like to understand that Jesus had this mission? At the end of our service, we're going to do something that's going to feel strange. We're going to sing a Christmas carol, Joy to the World. And the reason is that, first of all, it's awesome. And in England, where Isaac Watts was from, who wrote it, it was not a Christmas. It was just every Sunday. This is a beautiful hymn. In America, we've turned it mostly into a Christmas carol. But listen to the words that, that come in the third stanza. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He, Jesus, comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That's his mission. That's what he's doing. And that's the context of our story, that this lawyer is asking a question out of blindness. What are the parameters? What do I have to do? He's blind. And yet Jesus opens the eyes and saying, says the cure to this curse, Jesus, will expand his kingdom. And only when we understand the cure to the curse, Jesus, will we as Christians be able to love our neighbor? Will we be able to engage that process? Okay, so here's the point. Loving your neighbor, here's what we're going to prove, is expanding the kingdom and, and repealing that curse. That's what we're going to learn today. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the question the lawyer is asking, the question Jesus is answering, and then the answer Jesus is giving. So the question the lawyer is asking. If I were to ask you, what's the question the lawyer asks? We would all say, well, he asks, who's my neighbor? And that's exactly correct in verse 29. But before that, you all remember in verse 25, he asks a little bit of a more profound question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So the presumption is he's asking Jesus, he's sitting there hearing Jesus' teaching, and he's like, what do I have to do to go to heaven, to the day I die, to walk into paradise? That seems to be what he's asking. Jesus answers him, what does your law teach? It's a beautiful question. He always turns it back, right? And the man amazingly answers correctly. The law teaches, and he names from Deuteronomy 6, 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then he also references Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. The very same thing Jesus himself has answered in the past. So Jesus says, okay, in verse 28, and do, you have answered correctly, do this and you will be saved. You will have life. Actually, I'm gonna, let me read it verbatim because it matters. <laughs> it always matters. Do this and you will live. Now, the man's asking about eternal life. Jesus seems to be promising it, not only eternal life, but life abundantly in the present tense. It's a future tense verb, but the Greek word has this sense of coming alive. I love to envision those, those electric um, snowmen and stuff at night and Christmas that, during the day they're just like deflated, like to see those come to life. That's what Jesus is promising. If you want life, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the promise. But there's a catch to the lawyer's question. He asked this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you hear the oxymoron? You do nothing to get an inheritance, right? Isn't the idea of an inheritance that you simply receive? 
And yet there's this question that you and I ask in our fallenness over and over. What do I have to do to get that? What must I do? It's, it's so common we don't even hear it. It's in the background. And it's in the background of this lawyer's question. And yet the answer of the law that he gives is so glorious. God's law, Psalm 19, it's glorious. It's life-changing to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. To love your neighbor, the law is beautiful. What's not beautiful is trying to achieve that law on human effort. Calvin famously said the law is a beautiful tool, a glorious tool, but a horrible master. And the problem that that lawyer is finding himself in and many of us find ourselves in when we come to these kinds of questions is what must I do? What's my boundary? How do I get what you're saying I'm gonna get? I've told this story several times from up here, but I wanna say it again. It's a Spurgeon illustration. I'll sort of paraphrase it, but there was a a carrot farmer in some far off fantasy world. And he came across in his field the most glorious large carrot he'd ever seen. And he immediately thought, I wanna give this to the king. And he does, he sets the appointment. The day comes, he brings it as a gift. The king receives it gladly and says to him, this is so beautiful, I wanna give you the field adjacent to this palace where you can expand your growing enterprises. And he went away happy. There was a man in the court who watched this happen whose his livelihood was raising horses. So he's like, perfect, I figured it out. So he takes his greatest horse, sets the appointment, shows up and gifts it to the king. The king takes the reins, thanks the man, hands it off to someone to take it away and notices the man's face is sad. He says, I know why you gave me the horse. You see, the difference between you and the carrot farmer is this. He was giving me a carrot. You were giving yourself the horse. The law, if that's your method of trying to earn your righteousness, is essentially your attempt to give yourself something. If we're going to try to go love our neighbor in order to earn something, it's never going to work, and it's going to crush us. So that's the question the lawyer is asking. Let's look at the question that Jesus is answering. Who is my neighbor? And the answer that Jesus essentially gives, anyone that's affected by the curse is your neighbor. Anybody that has the effect of the curse is whom is your neighbor, whom you're to love. So let's talk about the setting of our parable. Um, The setting is this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem is at 2,700 feet above sea level. Jericho is 800 feet below sea level. In the span of 17 miles, you drop 200 feet per mile. uh, Historically, it's known to be ravaged with robbers and crimes. Uh, There's stories from the Crusades and other places where they would set up brigades to protect pilgrims. Um, So ancient history knew this to be dangerous. And the situation is that this man in the story is walking down the road and these robbers overtook him. You know the story. They, they took his clothes, they took everything from him and they beat him until he was half dead. Apparently that's an actual designation. Not fully dead, not three quarters, half dead. Really, you don't want to be half dead, trust me. I don't know how I would know. So you know the setting, the situation. And along the way, he's laying there, two people come by, a priest and a Levite. Now apparently the priest's 
had orders in Jericho. That means they had groups, the, the groups where they lived in Jericho. Um, and they would serve in the temple in Jerusalem. So they'd make the trek to the temple and back, often depending on how it all worked out for two weeks out of the year. What really matters is, is this. A priest who's gone to the temple has been purified, like has been in the, like the, the climax of their religious experience has just happened, and they're as clean as they've ever been religiously, ceremonially. And probably, this is somewhat inferred, they would look forward to returning to home in Jericho to explain all that happened and just, just kind of share in the excitement of what they do for a living and a calling. And yet, to touch a body, a corpse, if he's dead, or someone who's unclean with wounds would mean he, that priest would have to necessarily quarantine. That's why none of you want to admit you've been exposed. It's like, if I say I was around someone, I've got to spend two weeks by myself. That's what this guy was thinking. I've got to stay outside. I can't go in. I'm going to be seen as unclean. And, and similarly, the Levite, uh, who is not quite as, you know, in that specific grouping as a priest, had cleanliness laws in his mind. More than likely, at least the rabbi had an animal, uh, most commentators would say, um, for various reasons. But that's the setup. But then we have, enter the scene, a Samaritan. Now, I think most of you, if you've been around the Bible at all, you've heard that Samaritans and Jews didn't get along. Intermarriage, the Old Testament, exile. Um, remember the, the Samaritan at the well, Jesus, the woman at the well, our father said we worship here. Your father, there's this animosity. Historically, Samaritans even are, are said to have like um, desecrated the temple with like human bones. There's just animosity. So when he says that, it would be like this. It would be like if Jesus came here today and said, the first passerby was Henry Iba. And you're like, oh. And then you hear something really negative. And the next passerby was Barry Sanders. But guess who the hero was? Baker Mayfield. That would, see, do you feel that in your bones, in your body? That's how that original audience would have felt. They would have been like, what? You know, the, the, the lawyer must be thinking, please don't tell me this guy, the Samaritan's going to do anything good. And he does. There's three things I want to draw out from the Samaritan that are very, very important. Here's what he does well. Number one, he sees the person and goes up to the person in such a way that he knows he'll be interrupted. You see, the, the priest and the Levite didn't go up to the body, but they had enough wherewithal to, to realize if I did walk over there, I will be interrupted. My life will be interrupted. Whether it's two weeks of quarantine and cleanliness or whatever it is, I'm not doing it. So this, the, the, the Samaritan, by definition, agrees to being interrupted simply by going up to the body. Secondly, and I would say one of my favorite points of this whole story, he had compassion. Compassion. I don't say a lot of Greek words here, but the word splachnizomai is the Greek word. It means an inner, visceral, empathetic response. He felt if you've ever studied, like, I've not studied much, but the vagus nerve that runs from your brain down your spinal cord and into much of your, your area, your gut area, is what often the ancients, that's why the Hebrews would call it your kidneys, the Greeks would say your heart. We're trying to always locate what 
you know, what part of your body, what organ is where this is happening? And there's actually this nerve that transi- transitions thoughts into feelings. That's why you have butterflies in your stomach or you get sick at your stomach. And so to have compassion, the actual root of that word is your innards. It feels something. You see, to love your neighbor is not just to walk over to be helpful, but it's to feel. And even more, I would even say it's to empathize, even in such a way that you essentially adopt that problem, right? Uh, I remember a pastor several years ago telling the story that he had taken a test, like a pers- one of his colleagues had had him do a personality test. I've not heard of this one. But it ranked gifts and not so gifts on a, on a scale. And the worst, the thing he was the worst at, he said, and he said it unabashedly, was empathy. It's like a zero. He's not in ministry anymore. You can't be a pastor if you don't have empathy. You cannot be a Christian if you don't have empathy. So this is not something the law can give you. Do you hear me? You can't simply read the list and go have this guttural response to harm, to the curse that you come across. Whether physical, spiritual, emotional, it's part of who you are as a Christian. You feel it. And then thirdly, and I, obviously the most profoundly, is he heals this person. Uh, when you read the passage, and I don't know if it's behind me or I'll just kind of tell you what we're, we're looking at. Um, he comes to this body and he says he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He didn't have a first aid kit. He's, made, he's using the things he brought for his own trip. He wanted the wine and the oil for his journey, but he's using them to help this person. He's bounding their wounds. Secondly, when you ever read the Bible, just kind of put yourself in the story. This is what you have to do. Then he set him on his own animal. Have you ever just paused for a minute? This is a 150-pound person. I think the homework assignment I want to give everybody in the room is when you get home and you've had lunch and you're resting, have someone, you know, lay on the ground and you try to get their body up on even a couch. Like, can you imagine the, the strength it would take and the energy to get that body up on an animal, let alone into a room? And then not only that, you're now, instead of riding an animal through this dangerous terrain, walking slowly, worrying a robber's going to overtake me. He had compassion and he showed love. That's what this is about, loving like that. How do you apply that kind of love? What does that look like? There's a lot of ways that this has been applied, the, the, the story of the Good Samaritan Obviously, one of the ones almost every commentator highlighted is race, racism. The, the call to love people that are different from you. The call to love Samaritans who are the enemies. But yet when you really stare at this passage and study it, it's not just someone that looks different or is from a different nationality. Ultimately, it's someone that's in trouble, that's broken, that has a problem that you can help. So I was thinking about even the unborn. I think oftentimes, I remember in seminary hearing a speaker say that the way a society deals with their weakest members gives you an image of what they really believe and how they're gonna really thrive. And so here we are in a nation that looks at the unborn and says, they don't have rights, they don't exist. And our job, one of our jobs would be to love 
the unborn, to love those that are, have the deck stacked against them, to do whatever we can to help. What about spiritual needs? One of the things I hear about this congregation that is so true is we are the friendliest congregation, and it's true. We have a lot of great, friendly people. I think we struggle in making our needs known and in moving close enough to each other to have compassion on broken places. It's very hard. It's very hard to move in when you have a busy life and you have somewhere you're going and you don't want to quarantine emotionally, so to speak. And that's what this is calling us to do. So how do you do it? What's the power source to do this? Jesus not only has the question of the lawyer, he has the answer that gives power. It's our last point. We know that he's answering the question, who is your neighbor? But he's also answering the question, ready? What must I do to inherit eternal life? He's still answering that question. Jesus is masterful. He can answer 20 questions with one answer. So how, and the, and the question is that we're all asking, I hope, if you've been listening so far, is how in the world can we do that? How can we love like that? It's the same question the lawyer asked. What must I do? Only, please, we're not saying to inherit eternal life. In the, um, in the lawyer's second question, we have this fascinating answer, uh, word, but he, because he wasn't just happy with the whole, I, I love the Lord your God, love your neighbor, go do likewise. He, he wants to say, well, who's my neighbor? And he says, seeking to justify himself, he asked the question. That word, dikaiosone, or dikaioso, uh, or dikaio, the verb, means to justify. And of course, it can mean I'm trying to justify my own question, but the way Luke uses it every time, especially in the next two chapters, is to be justified with God. This lawyer is, again, again, I'm coming back to the point, he's asking the question, what must I do to be justified, to be right with God? And that's a question I think we often ask. There's a famous story in Luke 18 that everyone in here knows, most likely you've heard of, the rich ruler who asked the exact question that the lawyer asked. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And again, Jesus is like, well, you doing the law? He's like, yes, I do the law since birth. Perfect. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, the proceeds to the poor, and follow me. Can you do that? He went away sad. And those listening are kind of like, like you and I, they're going like, okay, that was intense. Uh, so Jesus, noticing that they felt that way, said, let me explain something. It is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than a camel. Here's a parable he actually uses, than a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And the response is, then who can be saved? And what does Jesus say? With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So here's the rest of the story, a la Paul Harvey. Starting in Luke 9, 51, Luke tells us Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus, at that moment, is taking his final trek to the cross. He'd been to Jerusalem. He'll go three times in his entire earthly ministry, but this is his last, it's called the travel narrative. Our passage is in Luke 10. He's sent out 72. They've all returned. The kingdom is advancing. And we have this 
this story. And notice in verse 25, and behold, tells us Luke's responding still. Whether it happened immediately then or not, Luke's intention is to say, based on on the 72 coming back and Jesus' prayer and turning to his disciples and saying, blessed are you that see this, and behold, here's a lawyer who doesn't see it. Why? Because the lawyer thinks it's foolish to have to go to the cross. That's what legal thinking does. Weakness isn't good. So Jesus has just prayed, Lord, thank you the, the wise don't get this. The wise people, we would, a wise person would say, okay, you've got to like earn this and the way the world works. We're in a dystopian reality where you're trying to make things work and it will not work. And those little rules and those little laws will not only not help you, they'll crush you. Paul in 1 Corinthians says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. Jesus is clearly saying, You need a Savior, or you will never love another person. Have you been saved? Have you received Jesus' love? Are you a Christian? Who are you in the story? Please tell me you're not the robbers. Let's just all. Okay? If you are, you can be ashamed after the service. Hopefully, you're not the Levite and the priest, but often we are. Right? We use our religion to pass by brokenness, don't we? I can relate with that. I don't really fully relate to the Samaritan, but I'll tell you who we can all relate to. The half-dead person. Right? Paul tells us you're dead in your trespasses. Right? You have zero way to help yourself. The law won't save you. The robbers did it to you. You need someone from outside to come in and rescue you, to have compassion. If you look up that Greek word, splachthizomai, in the, in the scriptures, especially in the gospels, it's almost always referring to Jesus' compassion, inner compassion to the crowds. His mission is to reverse the curse The curse is all the way into our very souls and his mission is to save us and to rescue us. He's the Samaritan. Yes, we're supposed to also be the Samaritan. In John 13, Jesus washes the feet. Remember of the disciples? He comes close. He touches their feet. He washes their feet. He resumes his place and instructs them to do the same. The gospel works that way. You cannot love your neighbor unless you know the love of God and reciprocate that love and praise and joy. It comes through salvation and being rescued. When the gospel comes to you, the natural response of the human heart is joy. Why? Why? You were made in the image of God. If the curse is removed, you're going to resume the very thing you were made to do. Love God and love other people. That's what a person does made in the image of God. It's this curse of sin and law-keeping that keep us from that. And Jesus has rescued us from that. So again, we're going to come to the joy to the world in a little bit. When we sing it, please transition from I'm six years old and I can't wait to open presents to the adult, like, I want to really feast on these words. I'm going to feast on the words that Jesus gives us, or that Isaac Watts gives us about Jesus. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. 
Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. And no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. When you notice you don't love people, you're necessarily not aware that Jesus loves you. You don't think he cares for you. It may mean you're not a Christian. It may mean you're in the camp of the lawyer, living out a legal mindset, hoping that something you've done, some group you've joined, some membership you've made, some habit you've formed will somehow get you to heaven, and it will not. The only way we are saved is by the blood of Christ. By his wounds, we are healed. And when that happens, and we feast on that, and we meditate on that, and we, that sinks into our being, the only option will be to love others. It happens all the time on earth. You have a disease, you get healed, you become the advocate for that disease, right? That's what it looks like. That's what's happening. So what do I do when I come to this and go, I don't love people well? Run to Jesus. Say, Lord, I'm wounded. There are places where that curse has taken a stronghold. Will you continue to heal me? Will you pour oil and wine of your blood on these places that I would be set free from the tyranny of rule-keeping and law and self-identity and that I would just surrender everything to follow you. That's the goal. That's the desire. You'll never, this side of heaven, fully get there, but you'll progress. You'll get better. You'll, it'll, it'll be amazing as you begin to see yourself having compassion in situations you've never cared about. That's what we long for. Let's pray.